Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Well, lots of things are going on in technology. Now, one thing is we're going to have Leap Day this this uh, That's right. This thing. So we'll, we'll talk about where this Leap Day comes from and why we even need it. We've got an idea of the week. Okay. They can detect live skin, which they need for real face scans if they want to do face ID. Okay. Okay. And so they've developed a way to do that. Live skin. Yeah, as opposed to having a mask with the shape of your face. So people are are trying to fake out face recognition with with masks. Yes. And And it works. And it works. I hadn't even thought about this. Yeah, the breakthrough of the week, a new technique in fusion, which may actually solve our fossil fuel problem. It's uh, really quite an interesting idea. And DISA, the Defense Information Security Agency, confirms a data breach. That's really big news because they're the top security dog for the government. And they've used artificial intelligence to develop a new antibiotic. This is actually a real breakthrough. And Microsoft is getting into uh, voting machines. They've got an open source voting machine program that's pretty innovative. And this week we're going to feature Dr. Lawrence Gordon Tesler. He is a, a, an expert on computer user interfaces. He was out in Silicon Valley. He worked at Xerox, Xerox Park Labs. He worked at Apple. And he was, among other things, the inventor of the cut and paste technique, as well as many other techniques that we have in computers. That we take for granted. That's right. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Tom Shum, Dear Tech Talk. Once when I was younger, I actually won a radio contest but didn't want the prize, so I didn't and they didn't like it. And so I didn't take the prize. So he didn't like the prize, so he didn't take he it. He didn't take it. He says, you know, I listen to your radio show every day, and I've already gotten one prize, and I don't really need another one. He says, I could call in, but I just don't. But he says, I want you to know I wouldn't miss a single one of your shows. That's kind. But I wanted you to know that I'm listening, and I'm a loyal listener every single Saturday. And then Tom went on. He's a kind of a physicist sort of guy. He went on to the, the long discussion about the cat whisker radio. Remember, we we, we, yes. we, we talked about the transistor radio. So the cat whisker, whisker radio, it, it sort of brought back memories. They take a, a slug of, of a galena, which is actually uh, has germanium in it, as well as a lot of other pure impurities. And then you solder that into the circuit, and then you take a, a pointed wire and put it on the other side. And the, where the point hits the galena, you have what they call a diode effect where power can go 
where a, a current can go in one direction but not the other. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that diode rectifies the radio signal that's coming in because the radio signal oscillates back and forth and the diode rectifies it so you end up getting a current coming out of the little cat whisker and you send that current to a small speaker and you can listen to the radio waves that have been rectified and so that's it doesn't amplify it if you want to amplify you need a transistor but it, it allows you to rectify radio waves and you sort of and i used to play around with those little Little um, uh, little uh, cat whisker, cat whisker radios, and I, I I grew up in Kansas, and the there was a town in Kansas called Galena, Kansas, and they mined Galena, and I used to go over to the Galena mines and pick up my own Galena, right there in Galena, Kansas. I didn't. That's interesting. We didn't talk about this when we were talking. No, about- we didn't. It's you know, well, well, Tom's uh, Tom's email sort of brought all that back up, ah. and I remember they. Uh, I wasn't. These mines were, I, I think, very dangerous, and they were worried about, you know, cave-ins, and so they had them blocked off, no people allowed. And I'd have to sneak past all the barriers to get into the mining area, which were closed at the time, actually. But they call Galena the oldest mining town in Kansas, and so that's where that was the source of the actual Galena that was using these cat whisker radios. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, m- memories uh, memories came back to me sneaking in there. Like the corners of our mind. Yeah, I'd, I think my parents would not have a li- liked me going over there to those Galena mines. Probably not. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim, um, and the highlight of every show, Mr. Big Voice. Yes, he is he's, he's, certainly... <laughs> The highlight is whether or not he's going to show up and speak English. I love the show on February 15th. You did a great job talking about Cecil Green. I have no idea the proper way to pronounce Cecil Green's first name, but I can tell you he would pronounce it at work, Cecil. And his wife, Ida, and all of his friends called him Cecil. Now, maybe his British friends called him Cecil, but all the American friends called him Cecil. So I just thought you would like to know. Interesting. (laughs) So, so actually, Bob in Maryland actually knew him. We were having quite a discussion about this. Yes, we were. We got an email from Don in Alexandria. Dear Tech Talk, is it possible to save money by building your own laptop? I'd like, <laughs> man, that's <laughs> even you oh. know that answer. <laughs> uh, even thanks a lot for the book. I'd like even I know that answer. I would like an interesting well, how project. How about you run this board and I'll go down to Starbucks? <laughs> well. <clears throat> It's really not possible to save money by building your own laptop. You're better off just buying one retail. Because unlike desktop computers, laptops are constructed for, for are constructed from proprietary parts. They aren't standard. There are no uniform interfaces. So the pieces that you would get for a laptop are really made for a particular case, the form factor of a particular case. So you really, um, really would not be able to build one from scratch very easily. There is a bare-bones laptop kit, by the way, if you really want to do that. You, it has all the, the components, the interfaces that fit inside the case for you. Everything's there except the CPU, the RAM, and the hard drive. But by the time, you're, by the time you buy the bare-bone case, and by the time you buy the CPU, the RAM, and the solid-state hard drive, and then, of course, you have to buy a Windows license, you will spend significantly more than you would just by buying your own buying your own laptop. Now, if you're building a desktop, that's a different story. You can build a desktop because they've got those those uniform buses in there, and you can put cards in it. My son built quite a few desktop computers quite successfully. He learned, he learned a lot about specs and design. You see, the most difficult thing is you you know you if you build 
from desktop, you got to pick out your components. So you don't want to have one component that's really fast and another one that's slow. You want them all roughly matched so that you, you get good performance and it'll overpay for one part with, with performance that can't be used. So he spent a lot of time learning about specifications. He put together, you know, two or three. He had a good time. He saved a, a little bit of money. The hardest thing he had when he was building his desktop computers was mounting the CPU on the motherboard. Because the CPU, you have to put thermal paste underneath it. And if you put too much on it, it shorts the contacts. If you don't put enough on it, the, the CPU gets too hot and burns out. So he had trouble doing that. He actually ruined one CPU because he didn't put, put enough thermal paste on it and the thing just burnt up. Now, once he ruined his first CPU, the rest of them he could do. But that was the hardest thing. You can buy motherboards with the CPU already mounted in the thermal paste taken care of. So maybe if you've got a youngster and they're building a desktop, maybe for their first computer, get them a, a motherboard with the CPU already mounted, and then everything else is just sort of plug and play, easy to put together. And it is fun, and mm -hmm. you do learn a lot. But after he built two or three, that was about it. He just buys his computers because actually it's cheaper to get to get computers already pre-assembled and bought. We got an email from Herb in Fairfax, Dear Doc and Jim. I've heard that hackers are using rogue apps and other kinds of malware to spy on folks via their Windows computer webcams. I've even heard they're spying on them with their microphones as well. Is there anything mm. I can do to the, reduce this risk? Well, Microsoft actually recognized that threat. And that is true. There is malware that, that can connect to your microphone and people can listen in to you what's going on. So they added a new setting to the Windows 10 recent build that will handle it itself. And you can actually turn off access to the webcam or you can turn off access to the microphone. And that way, not even Windows or a rogue amp or a rogue application can get to it. You click on the start button and then hit the settings icon, that little gear there. And then <clears throat> scroll down to the bottom. It says something called privacy. Click on privacy. And you can choose webcam or you can choose microphone. And, and the example we'll give is microphone. Click on microphone. And under microphone, there's a little toggle switch that says microphone access to this device is either on or off. And you just simply turn it off. And if you do that, uh, even rogue software cannot get in and turn on your microphone. So that's actually a good feature that Windows, Microsoft Windows added in order to protect you from that rogue software. We got an email from John in Manassas. Dear Doc and Jim, I'm not a really a pro, pro photographer or anything, but I love taking a lot of pictures, and i got boatloads of them. I've got a Canon PowerShot camera with two SD cards, and I'll, and I'll fill up one SD card and then swap in the other one and just go back and forth, and then I'll, then I'll take the, the full one and I'll copy the pictures to an external hard drive. Now, what happened was I actually... <clears throat> accidentally got them mixed up and I formatted the SD card that was full of pictures. And now I can't access those pictures. Is there any way I can fix this? John in Manassas, help. Well, <clears throat> John, we actually covered uh, the software that we re recommend here before. This is this question's come in before. Um, there's a great file utility, recovery utility called Recover. Yes, so it sounds we talked like about this. we talked about it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it's a southern it sounds like southern Recover. software, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Recover. Now, Recover will scan your memory card to compile an inventory of all the files that haven't been overwritten since your card was last formatted. Most, if not all, your photos can be recovered since you actually haven't written anything to the SD drive since you reformatted it. So, I'd say all your photos will be there. 
So you can uh, you can download Recover, and uh, and then you will uh, you you know you can go through the process. I think you'll be able to get back all your pictures. Now, if you go to Recover, it's uh, it's shareware and it's available at a lot of download sites. Uh, the trouble with many download sites that have free software is that they might put some malware. They might embed some malware in it, and you you, you don't mm-hmm. know whether it's really clean or not. But there's one site that I kind of like, oldergeeks.com. <laughs> and this this is a couple, and they scan all the software, the free software that's available for download, and they make certain that their versions of it do not have any malware. See, because these download sites get paid a commission if they get you to download uh, software that's infected with malware. Mm-hmm. So you can go to oldergeeks.com, and then you can search for, on their site, search for Recover and download it there. And I think you'll have a safe copy of it, and good luck getting back your photos. We got an email from Sharon in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk, why can't I get Facebook or Pinterest to load while I'm at work? I use the same laptop uh, at home. I think I know why. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything works great at home, but I go to work, boom. No, I can't, you can't mess around at work. I can't get Facebook. I can't get Pinterest. Everything else loads. What's wrong? What can I do to fix this problem? Should I get a new job? Yeah. Okay, the fact that Pinterest and... Facebook load just fine when you're at home and not at work means it's not your laptop. Mm-hmm. You probably have come up against a policy of your company's IT department. The firewall. That blocks all social media. Many companies are doing this nowadays. They probably are also blocking Twitter and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't ask your IT company if they're doing no. this because then they're going to know that you're one of those people that just goofs off using social media. That's like saying, hey, I just <clears> went <throat> through that red light over there. So so what Sharon said, she says, now it said that the, that, the, that the website's not available. So then she said in her letter, I snuck into the bathroom and opened up my cell phone and I could get Facebook on my cell phone. So I know that Facebook really wasn't down. I think there's a deeper <laughs> problem here. We can't get off Facebook for eight hours a day. She can't get off Facebook, yeah. and then and they don't get. So now she's in the bathroom in the toilet stall, looking at Facebook on her on her iPhone. Yeah, there. You know, I'm thinking that actually indicates a serious problem. Yes. So we and we're here to intervene. We we need we need to do. We are and so Facebook interventions. I think what you have to do is. Uh, just forget it while you're at work. I think that is your best yeah. option. We got an email. By the way, don't download porn either. No, 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 no. That's, that's probably blocked too, I would suspect. <laughs> yeah, I would but do, but so. don't check it because they'll log who's been checking that one. Uh huh. We got an email from Marianne in Fairfax. Dear Doc and Jim, I travel internationally and have many contacts from around the world on WhatsApp. One person keeps sending me annoying text messages. I've ignored them, but now I'd like to block them. Is there any way I can do this with WhatsApp? Because this guy's just getting on my nerves. Love the show when I have time to listen. Marianne and Fairfax. Is this a Marianne that we know? Yeah. Now, notice this. She says, when I have time when to listen. I was going to say, that was the tip-off. <laughs> when I have time when to I listen. When I have time to listen. Because listening is not always available because there are just too many other activities that just seem to be wait, more important wait, than Tech Talk. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere. Tech oh. Talk is omnipresent. <clears throat> she told me she only likes it live. And then she always has appointments during the live thing. So, you know, I don't uh, know. You know. Okay, well, you can easily block messages on WhatsApp by blocking the number. You open up the WhatsApp on your phone, and if you have chat open, navigate back to the main chat screen. Select the settings icon at the bottom right screen, and then the count, and then privacy, and then blocked. And then you can tap add new. You're going to add a name to the block list. Choose the contact you wish to block. 
Now, you can also click on the name of a person sending a text chat or message, and then you can click on block contact. So if, you, if they're not on your contact list, you just right-click on the name of the person who sent you the message, and you can block it directly, and they don't even have to be on your contact list. So I'm, WhatsApp has got that set up really easily. I'm just happy that Marianne still asks you for advice and will actually take it. Yeah. Well, well of course, she may, ne- she ne- may never hear this answer. <laughs> That's a very good point. You know, because she may never actually hear the answer. We got an email from Philip <laughs> in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, myoutlook.com is putting legitimate emails into the junk mail folder. Huh. Seems very random, but some of my closest friends' emails are going to the junk folder and other legitimate, you know, as well as some other legitimate contacts. I, uh, you know, I, can I just not use Outlook, do something to Outlook.com? What do I have to do to fix it? How can I stop this filtering? Well, you need to train your email filter. Now, what you do is periodically go to the junk mail, and you find some junk down there that is uh, shouldn't be junk. You can just say not junk. And eventually, they will learn what you don't want to be declared as junk. Now, the safest way, if instead of because training takes a while, you'd have to get some in the junk mail. You have to find them, say it's not junk. It might take a few cycles to complete right. the training. You can also set up safe senders. And what you can do is you can, you can basically go to, go to settings and go to options, and then you've got blocked senders and safe senders. So you can click on safe senders, and then you can just add the names of the people who are sending you emails that you want to declare them as safe, and they will never be put in junk mail again. Huh, how about that? Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and exclusively in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. I promise it is not our first day on Periscope. We'll be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. 
Yes, today we're going to feature Lawrence Gordon Tesler. Now, Lawrence Gordon Tesler, I mean, they called him Larry, actually. Only his mother called him Lawrence, Lawrence Gordon. Gordon. Yeah. We find that for quite frequently in yeah, profiles yes, in IT. Yes, it is. So Larry Tesler is a computer scientist who worked in the field of human-computer interaction, and he developed all sorts of techniques where people would interact with the computer. And the most famous is, uh, I suppose, cut and paste. And he did many, many other things, which I'll get into when we get down further in the profile. Tesla was born April 24, 1945, in the Bronx, New York City. Yo. He graduated from Bronx High School of Science in 1961. You can say the Bronx School of Hard Knocks. This, by the way, this Bronx High School of Science is the one that the girls couldn't get into. Remember that? We've, oh, had, right. we've had some yes. female profiles in IT, yeah. and they wouldn't let women... Back in 61, yeah. a woman could not enroll in this yeah. because they said science is for only girls. for men. Yeah, that's. Just, I think they recovered from that for a long time Let's ago. Hope so. Yeah, but that. But the back then, that's what. At, back then, that was the situation at Columbia. At Columbia, he, he got accepted into a program at Columbia where he could work on a computer a half hour a week. <clears throat> One of their uh, big computer systems at Columbia University for half hour a week. And while he was in school, he taught himself programming. So he knew how to program before he went to college. Now, he was kind of a smart guy. He graduated from the Bronx High School of Science at age 16, and he was accepted at Stanford. So he, in 1961, he started Stanford, and he went out there and he got a, he got a degree in computer science and mathematics. He got a bachelor of a bachelor's degree, you know, majoring in computer science and mathematics in 1965. Now, while he was there working on his uh, bachelor's degree, he also worked at the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab, S-A-I-L. That's a convenient acronym, SAIL. It is. SAIL. And he worked there, and he, he co-designed a program called COMPEL, which was a functional programming language. And... Um, they also wanted him to create a way to to send a text message and have it print up as a fully printable document with all sorts of fonts and everything, you know, just with purely text. So he invented a new language called Pub, and this was recognized as one of the first markup languages. And a markup language is you put uh, tags on it, um, at the front of a of a text string and at the end of a text string, and those tags tell the program what font it is, how to format it, and those are formatting tags. And so it's all text, but then you embed formatting tags around specific text, and when this is compiled and printed, the program then converts it into a formatted output document. So he was really quite ahead of his time. This same technique, by the way, is used for hypertext uh, language uh, for the web. HTML is hypertext meta language. That also uses tags, and that's how you format information on the web. So he actually invented this method of formatting. You know, very at the he was one of the first people to do it. One, he's one of these real innovators. He was accepted for a position at Park. Xerox it was a Xerox uh, research lab, Palo Alto Research Center, Palo Alto, California, P A R K uh, Park. You're batting a thousand on acronyms today. That's right. And so at the Palo Alto Research Center, these they had assembled a group of scientists that were ahead of their times, and they <clears throat> invented uh, they they invented the uh, you know the um, 
the um, the mouse, the computer mouse, where you could interact with the thing with icons, object-oriented programming languages, where, you, where you'd have objects you could click on and they would do things. They, they invented the um, printers where you could print what we saw on the screen you printed uh, you printed right on the paper and they they invented uh, ethernet where you could network computers together these guys were way 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 ahead of their league in their time but they were owned by xerox and xerox said well we're just a copying company and they didn't know what to do with all this great technology <laughs> so most of the technology ended up you know being disseminated and being used by other companies in silicon valley like all of the all the font technology was uh, was the basis of Adobe when when Adobe started, mm-hmm. and so he was hired by Park, and the guy who hired him was Alan Kay. Alan Kay is the guy who invented the mouse that we use in the computers. We've featured him before on yes. Profiles in IT. Now, while Tesla was there, it's not Tesla, it's, it's Tesla. Yeah, I want to be sure about that. Larry Tesla. Uh, he worked on a word processor called Gypsy, uh, and then he also worked on the first dynamic object-oriented programming language, Smalltalk. Now, of course, objects means you have objects on the screen you can click on, and they're, it's self-contained piece of code that would operate and just do something. And so he created object-oriented programming languages for these graphical user interfaces. Now, working on Gypsy, Tesla and his colleague, Tim Mott, started writing down ideas which would, you know, lead to the, you know, which would be important in an interactive computing environment. They started brainstorming what kind of things would we like to have. So they, the two of them developed the idea of basic copy and paste, which is now used as a standard feature. And, of course, they got that name because when people are doing, were doing layouts, you know, newspaper layouts, you would, you would cut you would cut up a square of paper and then you would paste it in there and you'd assemble the paper and you'd cut and paste. So they had the analogy only on the computer screen. Uh, Tesla also believed that computer interfaces should be modeless, where all actions taken by a user at all times are, you know, the same action, as opposed to having software that has different modes. Like, for instance, I was about to ask you, what to you give mean you an example, that. suppose you're playing a game. And you might have one mode, which is the game playing mode, where the where, where the keyboard moves the cursor around and fires the gun. But you might want to. But then you could also have the communication mode, where you type on the keyboard and then you're typing a text message to your friends. So if you're sit, so there are two modes. So suppose you're sitting there in the keyboard mode, text message mode, and all of a sudden incoming comes and you got to fire them. Well, you hit the key to fire the gun, and you send a text message to your friend. So when you've got two modes to operate, frequently users make mistakes. Mm-hmm, yeah. So there's another there also your keyboard has two modes, like caps lock on, caps lock off. So the the, the same pressing of the key will either be a capital J or a small J. Those are two modes. Or you could have you could also have overwrite or insert text. Those are two modes. He did not believe in modes because then people get confused as to what mode they're in. Or there are some word processing programs where you might have a command mode where you type a command and then you might have a text entry mode and then you go back and forth. And he just he thought most of the mistakes were because people got confused as to what mode they were in. So he was a a guy who thought all software should be modeless so that you do the same thing. The same action that you take does the same thing because it's always in one mode. Gotcha. Now, Tesla also invented the frame user-friendly. 
We use that all the time. Huh. He also invented the fra- the the name what you see is what you get with you wig yeah because they, we had the problem you know, you'd see this beautiful picture on the screen but then you print it and it looks like garbage so mm-hmm. you want to what, what on the screen should you be able to print so what you see is what you get so he invented that and he also invented a lot of the you know the backup uh, interfaces that would allow that to happen well as you might imagine park was way ahead of their time and back in uh, 1979 Steve Jobs toured park came around there and they showed him all these great things the mouse the graphical user interface and this was 2 years after Steve had uh, had <clears throat> started Apple so he liked this stuff mm-hmm. so what Steve did and they and uh, and John uh, uh, Larry Tesla showed Steve Jobs the Xerox Alto which was their personal computer with the graphic graphical user interface, and he also showed him Gypsy, which was the word processing program, and Smalltalk, which was the object-oriented uh, program that they could they could interact with. So that was in 1979 that, that Steve Jobs uh, toured Park. In 1980, a year later, he poached Tesla from Park. <laughs> <laughs> and he poached quite a few other people, and he started working on a program, a, a, a computer at Apple, which is going to steal all the stuff that he saw at Park, the Apple Lisa, named after Steve Jobs' daughter. Ah, who, who, I didn't who, know that. Yeah, he didn't want to admit that she was his daughter, but everybody knew she was oh, his daughter. Oh, that's right. I remember that from his story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that was the Lisa named after his daughter. Finally, he admitted he named it after her. And so uh, while he was at Apple, now he ended up working for Apple for 17 years. While he was at Apple, he developed an object-oriented a language extension for Pascal, because they wanted to load Pascal on the lease, and they wanted to have interact with it on the screen with these objects. So he, he made object-oriented extensions for that. And um, so he was there. He started in 80. 1990, they moved him over to the VP of Apple's Newton Group, uh, which was, you know, an ill-fated effort. That didn't really didn't go anywhere. If you remember, mm-hmm. they had probably before 90, I think they fired Steve Jobs, remember? Yeah. Scully fired Steve Jobs. And, I, and so... And so they moved uh, Tesla over to the Newton Group, which was ill-fated. In 93, he said, i got to get out of this Newton Group. It's going nowhere. <laughs> so he was promoted Apple's chief scientist uh, because he just so frustrated with the progress on the Newton. Well, that's when Scully was running the thing. Scully, didn't, Scully was just not a visionary. By 97, Tesla decided to leave, to leave Apple. And this was when it was – this was before Jobs had come back and – they were struggling financially, and they just didn't think they could afford research. And Scully just wanted to take all the old products and milk them. So he said, this isn't for me anymore. So he left, and he, co- he co-founded a, a company called Stagecraft Software there in Palo Alto in 1997. His team created a programming environment for educational use. But this was when the around the dot-com crash era. Dot-com crash was around 2000. 1999, 2000. He shut down the company in 2000. They just couldn't sell anything. And he just decided to join Amazon. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a culture shift for him when he joined Amazon in 2001. You see, he'd always lived in Silicon Valley around Palo Alto and all. Uh, Amazon is headquartered in Seattle. So he had to move to Seattle. And so he was was VP in charge of the shopping experience. It was the user (laughs) interface the user interface for Amazon, and he helped improve the Amazon website interface. He developed the book preview program, 
So a lot of the features that you have on Amazon now and you love when you're doing your shopping, you know, Larry was, you know, right there helping develop them. But he only stayed there at Amazon for four years because he missed the culture of Silicon Valley. So then he took a job as VP for user experience for Yahoo back in 2005. And uh, he stayed at Yahoo for about three years. Um, and then he just, he just, they just were all over the place. He just, he just couldn't really, uh, he didn't like it there because they had too many products. There wasn't enough focus. And so he left in 2008. Uh, now, he was a big proponent of no modes. Right. So his California license plate was no modes. Starting he was really at 210. pretty hardcore if you put that on a license that plate. That was huh? on his license plate, no modes. His personal website was nomodes.com. And I mm-hmm. looked that up, nomodes.com, even though he, he, he died, it's still active, nomodes.com. His Twitter handle was at nomodes. Huh. <laughs> he was a firm believer that we had to eradicate modes in software to make it easier for users, users to navigate. Because you got two modes, the same key does two different things depending what what mode you're in, and then users forget what mode they're in, and then they make a mistake. Mm-hmm. So he died in uh, Portola Valley, California, February sixteenth, twenty twenty, at age seventy four. Wow! I went back and looked at a lot of the things he did there. When he went, when he went back to Silicon Valley, you know, he said there's a culture in Silicon Valley that when you make, when you make money, you don't retire. You actually invest in new startups, and you train these guys and help them become successful. So there's this sense of giving back. And the reason he didn't like Seattle, he couldn't give back to Silicon Valley community. And I looked at a lot of his, uh, you know, you know, he was in a lot of, um, you know, forums and things there. And the guy in the last, uh, you know, the last part of his life was just giving back and trying to trying to help the next generation of entrepreneurs there in Silicon Valley to sort of, sort of keep the engine rolling. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Larry Gordon Tesler, he's uh, one of the big pioneers in user interfaces. And he, a lot of the things you, that you've gotten used to over the years, he was one of the guys who actually developed them. Hope you're paying attention because you can take what we've just taught you, or more specifically Dr. Schertz, and turn it into free lunch. Stand by for the pop quiz. On Federal News Network, Tech Talk Radio, we're heard on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and on 104.5 FM in Loudoun County. You can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. You know the drill. If you're calling from west of the... Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, and uh, you know... We do have modes in here. In our studio, we're not you know, modeless. It's really funny that I would mess up pushing, but I, right. I just pushed everything out of the out See, of sequence there. The panel was in the wrong mode. Therefore, no. the buttons were, were had a different programming. The operator was in the wrong mode. Okay. That's the problem. There we go. Well, as you know, this is not simply a radio show. This is a classroom of the airways. And that means that we are going to assess whether our class has been listening. And if the class is listening and knows the answer to a an assessment an assessment tool, mm-hmm. which we call the pop quiz, they'll get A plus for today's session plus win tickets to fine dining. Now earlier in the show I talked about Lawrence Gordon Tesler. He's a user interface expert with computers and he developed many, many techniques that we are so used to now when we interface with our computers, including cut and paste. But he had a certain belief in how software should be developed. And that belief is reflected in what was on his license plate. So the question is, what was on his license plate? What was on his license plate? If you know the answer to today's question, well, now's your chance. You know the drill. If you're calling from west (laughs) of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're cutting and pasting images of snowdrifts in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else anywhere else may call us on the off-brand international line, 877-9-3639-333. Now... Once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yes. And so, uh, what should you do now? We're just going we're to the gonna, next we're topic. Go, we're going to go to a topic because we have to wait for somebody to call. Oh, that's and right. It could be, see, we're both in different modes here. Now, here's the thing. What is it? Jim, What's did, going on? Did you notice that this month is February 29th? I did notice that. And that only occurs every fourth year. Yes. That is called Leap Day. 
and this is leap year. Now, what exactly does that mean? And I what don't do know, we have Doc, to but do I think that? you're going to tell us. I'm going to tell I'm going to go through the math of leap day because I think everybody needs to know this. You know, there's going to be a cocktail party tonight and somebody's going to ask you that question, oh, you know, over the uh, over the dip. So here's the thing. And then when they fall face first in the dip, when so you explain we all, it. So we all know that <clears throat> the year is based on how long it takes the Earth to travel, make one revolution around the sun. And it takes approximately 365 days to travel around the sun. Mm-hmm. That would be one year. But it's not exactly 365 days. It's 365.2422. So it's about 365 and a quarter of a day. Mm-hmm. So... It's not exactly a quarter of a day. So that means that each year you pick up a quarter of a day minus some change. So what you do every four years would be four quarters. So that means you've shifted by one day. So every four years you've got to skip a day in order to catch up for that extra quarter day. Uh-huh. Now, but it's not exactly 0.25. It's 0.2422. Two, right. So that means you're off by about 45, 45 minutes. Over the course of four years. Over the course of four years. And so now they have a special formula that not every leap year is going to be a leap year to make this adjustment. So this is the formula. You divide for all the leap years that are are divisible by 100 that are also divisible by 400, you don't have a leap year. So So how often does this happen? well, Well, for instance, 2000 was a leap year. Right. The year 2000 is divisible by 100, divisible by 400, so 2000 did not have did not have a leap year. Did not have a leap year. On the other hand, the next the next uh, leap year would have been 2004. Would right? be at, in 2100 because that's be the next one that's divisible by 100. Oh, I see what you mean. Would be 2100. That's not divisible by 400, so that'll be a leap year. I got you. Then 2200 will be a leap year. 2300 will be a leap year. 2,400 will not because it's divisible by 400 plus so 100. we have to wait 400 <clears throat> years. Yeah. So that gives us the final question. That but gives then you something to look forward to. But then you're still off by a second or so, and so occasionally there's a leap second just to catch up. So there's you go. Pretty grief. much, listen, if you want to clear the cocktail party tonight, talk, once you talk about that 100 and 200 division, you've, you've cleared the room, I'm telling you. Gotcha. <clears throat> <clears throat> so I think we may have a winner, but Andrew is in the process of processing <clears throat> things. Oh, my. So why don't we talk about, because there's a whole, you know, thing that has okay. to happen here. Here's the idea of the week. Live skin face scan. <laughs> now, now this really sounds a little tacky. I mean, it who, sounds a little weird. Who's yes. going to want to do a, uh, a face scan, which is not live skin? That just doesn't sound really, really appropriate. No, it doesn't. But it turns out that this is actually kind of important because with face scanning being used for all this ID, uh, people could make a mask, a very realistic mask, and then it would work for a face scan. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, they want to find a way to detect live skin. So this German chemical company, Trinomix, which um, which is a subsidiary of Bass F, promises that it could work it could develop affordable components that could actually detect live skin while it is doing the face scan. And this just will form an extra layer of verification. It says, well, is the skin live or dead? So, you know, we already know that iPhone 11 and the, <clears throat> and the, Google, the Google Pixel 4, they use a 3D map of infrared dots for security, but they can't detect whether it's live skin or not. 
So Trinomax is going to check on backscatter because there's a little bit of light reflected when they when they go out there. So they're going to have a little small laser that actually just shines out on the skin and they'll get a back reflection. Mm-hmm. And then they will look at the backscatter, the spectrum of the backscatter that's coming back, and they can tell whether it's live skin or not uh. from the backscatter. And so that is going to turn out to be an excellent method and they said they can do this at low cost so you won't even notice there'll be a difference this will probably be coming out in the next uh you know in the next couple of years because i think this technology is very doable and you know that that, that they have to do this those yeah. are relying on it more and more often you know speaking of live versus <clears throat> dead skin we were talking off air about uh, the coronavirus and That's apparently there's no everybody's got a way to make a buck uh-huh. somebody's figured out a way to print your face on these face masks, which, by the way, we've discovered are are useless. Yes. They really are. I mean, you, you probably get something higher grade that's better off than that. Mm-hmm. But these little just paper thingies, they do nothing. But now you can have your face on it. So yeah, that's really like a, that's really a mu- that's that's much more attractive. But yeah. I, but maybe <clears throat> what they should do because they kind of look like a dog mm-hmm. muzzle. Why mm-hmm. don't they make like you have a dog face? Oh, that's there's an idea. Yeah, but I don't think that, I don't think idea. I don't think it would sell. I don't think it I would think sell. you're probably right. That sound means yeah. we've got somebody who would like to play our game. So let's go to line two. And this is Dick calling us from Annandale, Virginia. Dick, good morning. How are you, sir? Great. How are you doing? Doing well, Very thanks. Very good. Dr. Schertz, go ahead and ask yeah. the question. Early in the morning, I talked about Larry Tesler. He, of course, is a computer interaction specialist who developed cut and paste and many other things. What was on his license plate? California license, no mode. That is correct. Excellent. You are the winner today. Dick, hang on a second. We're going to send you back to Andrew. Andrew will take your information and we'll send the prize off to you via email because we are a technology show, right? Yes, indeed. There you go. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Watch us do the program by downloading your uh, the Periscope uh, app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. We'll be right back with more Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University 
with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. <clears throat> I'm going to talk about what could be the breakthrough of the week. Hydrogen boron fusion. Okay. I'm sure you're going to explain <clears throat> why this is the breakthrough of the week. There's a company, HB11 Energy, which is a spin-out company that originated from the University of South Wales, claims that it that its hydrogen boron fusion technology is already working a billion times better than expected. Now, Doc, can I ask a question? <clears throat> yes. Why would we want to fuse hydrogen and boron? Well, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. I'm sorry, we're gonna, I didn't mean to rush you, Doc. We're, we're, we're but gonna, I'm, we're, I'm no, we're gonna get to that. Terribly curious. We're gonna get to that. Now, this is a result. This is the results of decades of research by researchers by a researcher there at the university, emeritus professor Heinrich Hora. And so he um, he wanted to approach his fusion in a way that would not require. Um, uh, very difficult fuels to work with, like tritium. Instead, it uses a very plentiful source of hydrogen and boron, which are which are available at, at all times. He also wanted to find a way that he could do the fusion at a much lower temperature. So here's the thing: <clears throat> with fusion, if you if you can find a way to generate energy with fusion, the 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 product the output product is not is not radioactive waste it's just water and hydrogen okay whereas if you do fission which is like what many of the nuclear bombs are you got you got radioactive waste you can't get rid of it so <clears throat> that's one of the reasons that that they don't like fission reactors because you have radioactive waste and you also have the problem that if you can't cool the radioactive material you can have a meltdown and that in the uh, and, that's and the bad. and it can go right into the right into the soil or the the water underneath and so you know we had a meltdown of that Fukushima mm-hmm. there was a meltdown that occurred there in Russia at that one Chernobyl Chernobyl yeah and so and so because of these huge mistakes caused mostly by operator error people don't want to have these nuclear power plants and so if we want to get rid of the carbon footprint and generate electricity in other ways, we need, we need nuclear. And nuclear fusion does not have these byproducts. So you can't have a meltdown with nuclear fusion. It just cools down. There is no, there is no radioactive core that's, just going to, that's going to melt down. So it's much safer. But the problem is most of the fusion experiments, it took more energy to generate the fusion than you were getting out of it. So you really, it really wasn't practical. So they've come up with this technique. Now, basically, it's basically a, a, an empty metal sphere that they have, and they have a fuel pellet, uh, which is basically boron, held right in the middle. And they have two apertures on either side of this, this uh, metal sphere, and two lasers go through those two apertures. Now, one laser establishes a magnetic containment field for the plasma, and the second laser triggers an avalanche fusion chain reaction. That's the deal. So the alpha particles generated by the reaction will create electrical flow, and that could be channeled right into an electric grid without any need for heat exchange or anything. Now, a lot of the fusion experiments require the lasers to heat things to very high temperatures, and they generate the collisions through, through this high heat. Because if you, if you have something that's very hot, the particles move quickly, and then they get, they get collisions that way. They don't use heat to accelerate the particles. <clears throat> Basically, they use lasers 
to accelerate the hydrogen through the boron. And then occasionally, a hydrogen atom will strike a boron atom, and once it strikes the boron atom, it's accelerated at such a high speed that it, char- that it causes a fusion chain reaction. And that fusion chain reaction creates a couple of helium atoms that are naked of, of electrons, so they have a positive charge. And when those positively charged helium atoms without electrons, those ions, helium ions, they, they're collected and, you, and you get elect, you'll get electric current. Now, HB11 says that generators could be compact and clean and safe enough to build in the Everett environment. There's no nuclear waste, no superheated steam, and no chance of meltdown. Because if the thing fails, the lasers just turn off and there's nothing, there's, there's no, nothing su- there's no yeah. sustainable reaction. So this may be a substitute for carbon as our energy source. I mean, could this be used? Could you have little mini ones of these running cars? Yeah, I mean, they're. Uh, it, I don't know how. I don't know how big the, the the lasers are. They're using some pretty big lasers mm-hmm. to do this. Thing. I don't know if they could be small enough for a car, but you could certainly do it for for you know for power plants. I think there's going to be something like this is 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 going to actually be used for replacing fossil fuels. I think there's going to be a technological development. You know, Interesting. I, and, and I think we have to wait for the technological development. The idea of somehow saying we're going to just switch over when there's no technical option is just stupid right. because there's nothing to switch to. It's all just hype. But this is actually pretty exciting. So even though this is not quite, you know. It's not soup it's, yet. It's, it's a big It's, it's a, a big, big deal. But the thing is they're, they're actually getting performance, which was a billion times better than they thought they would get on the first go-around. So, so they've got a proof-of-principle experiment. We'll, we'll tra- check back on them, the hydrogen-boron fusion a, reactor. This was a physicist's <clears throat> dream. It was. This is like the perfect article for me. I love this. <laughs> DISA has confirmed a data breach. This is a big deal. The Defense Information Security Agency, this is the big, the top dog in cybersecurity for the government. They're responsible for all the communications that, that President Trump does, all the presidential things, anything high level, they protect. The Defense Information Security Agency describes itself as a combat support agency of DOD that's tasked with supporting secure White House communications, including those of President Trump. As well as overseeing Trump's secure calls, DISA also establishes support communication networks in combat zones and takes care of military cybersecurity issues. And they have confirmed that there was a data breach of their network, which exposed data affecting as many as 200,000 users. Mm. There was a disclosure letter that was dated February 11th that was sent out to all those personnel within DISA that were affected. Now, it's not clear which specific servers were breached or the nature of the, of the users with the, where the letters were sent, but the um, agency has contacted everyone that was affected. The letter was signed by Roger Greenwell, the chief information officer at DISA. The letter revealed the breach took place between May and July of last year, and information including social security numbers may have been compromised. The letter does all confirm that DISA is offering free credit monitoring for those that were affected. I mean, this is a big deal because it's DISA. Right. It's, it's DISA. Let's have the breakthrough of the week. I yes. got a lot of break. I got a lot of stuff of the week. A lot of stuff going on this. Yeah. Then we'll have the product of the week. This okay. this is like a major rollout th- today. We may not have a chance for the product. We may have I know. to roll that off. It depends on how quickly. So you get the to breakthrough it. of the week: antibiotic 
An antibiotic, a powerful antibiotic, has been discovered using machine learning. Now, you know, one of the problems with our antibiotics is that, is that you know, the um, viruses and the germs are learning how to adapt so that the antibiotics don't work because we, we, we use too many antibiotics. And so now we're, we're finding some strains and some infections where antibiotics aren't working. We've got to develop new antibiotics. So in order to solve this problem, uh, researchers began using deep learning algorithms. So they trained a deep learning algorithm <clears throat> to identify the sorts of molecules that kill bacteria. To do this, they fit information on the um, – what they did, they fed information on the atomic and molecular features of nearly 2,500 drugs and natural compounds and – whether those compounds would block the growth of the bug E. coli. <clears throat> so they basically had 2,500 drugs and that had been tested against E. coli. They put in all the atomic features, molecular features of the 2,500 drugs, and they told the program whether or not it would block the growth of E. coli. So <clears throat> the machine learning program began to try to figure out what features within those drugs are responsible for the E. coli action. Now, once the algorithm had learned what the molecular features were for the good antibiotics, they then gave it a library of more than 600 compounds that were under investigation for treating various kinds of diseases. They were not, weren't necessarily as an antibiotic. And they just, well, take a look at these 6,000 compounds, see whether any of these look good. So rather than looking for any particular antimicrobials, the algorithm focused on the compounds that looked effective but unlike existing antibiotics, and they were looking for particular features that I, they discovered during the deep learning portion of the, uh, of the program. Now, it took a matter of hours for the program to assess the compounds, and it came up with some prom promising antibiotics. So the first one that came out of the hopper, they called Hallison. The researchers called it Hallison. Remember HAL in 2001? Yes. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the computer? So this is hal Asin. In other words, <laughs> it's an antibiotic created by Hal. So this is Hallison, and, uh, <clears throat> and Hallison compound was originally developed to treat diabetes. I mean, it, it was just in this, it was originally developed to treat diabetes, but it never went to reach clinical trials, and it just dead-ended. But it had the features that would do this thing, so it turned out that it could kill a lot of these different elements very quickly, and they went on to discover 23 other potential antibiotics. That was a huge breakthrough using machine learning for antibiotics. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to stratford.edu, the website. Check out our programs there. And tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.